continuing our series in Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 914. Again, please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Then they set before the these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may we be a people devoted to prayer, a people devoted to the ministry of the word and a people who see the needs that are out there among us, that we would be devoted to ministries of mercy as well. God, as we hear your word this morning, may our hearts be changed. May we be reminded of all that is ours in Christ and all that you call us to be so that your church may grow and that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's not my typical practice to open sermons with quotes from Twitter or X, whatever we're supposed to call it now. Uh, but I read this this past weekend when we were out of town, and then I saw another pastor in our presbytery retweeted it or re-X'd it. Is that what he? Like, this is so confusing. Elon Musk, come on. What are you doing? Anyways, he, I'm going to say he retweeted it, uh, and I was like, okay, maybe that's a confirmation that I'm supposed to share this because it, it fit um, with this passage. But this pastor shared this account from a family that he had met. He said they were involved in starting a house church because they wanted to do church just like the early Christians did. No building, no creed, no senior pastor, etc. When they came together, they sang, they prayed. And various people brought messages from the word. And it grew. More people wanted to be a part of this. So many, so many more that they soon outgrew the house. So they pooled their resources to rent a school gym to meet in. As they continued to grow, their mostly like-minded groups started to diversify as well. They had previously let anyone with a message speak. But as the group grew, there were some real crazies who were saying bizarre stuff. So their next step was to regulate who got to speak. Not just anyone could preach, only designated people. But how could, it, how could they decide who that was? They had a meeting where they made a list of the most important things they believed in common and thought were biblical. 
They were now a few years into their house church experiment, and lo and behold, read the sarcasm, they had followed the same pattern as the early church. From an informal gathering in a house to meeting in a public location with a creed and a designated clergy. I've mentioned several times up to this point how things in the early church were not always hunky-dory. Chapter 2, the disciples are accused of being drunk at the day of Pentecost. Chapter 3, Peter and John are commanded not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. Chapter 4, they get arrested. And then in chapter, those are and those were all the kind of the external oppositions. Chapter five, we have the account of Ananias and Sapphira. The, kind of the opposition and the, the drama turns inward in chapter five. We continue now in chapter six to see growing pains. Just like the modern day example of the church that ironically wanted to become more like the early church until they grew and they realized that they actually needed some structure and direction. Growing pains are good. Growing pains are signs that things are moving in the right direction. This is such a great text before us today. We see a clear problem, and then the solution, and then the result. And this is one of those texts that often gets used for a certain purpose, which we'll see. But I think it's actually about more than that thing. It's, it's about multiple Things And I think this is why we have to be careful in our preaching and in our own personal reading to see and to say what the text says. Can't just read our favorite practices or our favorite doctrines into any text of scripture. And every group, every theological bent is guilty of doing that in different ways. And we just have to be careful that we're not saying this text supports our practice of this. Now, it may, but we can't read it just for that purpose, and I'll, I'll get to that. So I think the context is key here. The text gives us some helpful clues. Luke bookends this passage with a repetition that should cause us to consider carefully what may be at the heart of what is going on here, and we'll see that in a moment as well. The main point, I think, of the text, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, I believe the main point is that in the midst of growing pains, Christ will build his church through the ministry of mercy and the ministry of prayer and the word. Prayer and the word being together, a ministry together. So in the midst of growing pains, Christ will build his church through the ministry of mercy and the ministry of prayer and the word. This was true for the early church in Acts. I think this Principle actually goes all the way back to what we read in Deuteronomy. That was Moses' retelling of Exodus chapter 18 when Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to him and says, look, man, you're going to get burned out if you keep taking all of these cases, right? If you just let every, pe every person with every little case come to you, you're going to burn out. You got to spread, you got to spread the love, right? You got to appoint others to do, to help you in this work. We saw that principle all the way back then. We see it here in the book of Acts. It was true for the early church. It's been true for the church throughout the last 200 centuries. It's true for Livingstone Church today in the same way that it was when we planted the church six years ago. It's true for Good Hope Presbyterian Church, as you guys all 
launch out and pre prepare to plant. Christ will build his church through the ministry of mercy and the ministry of prayer in the word. And this takes an understanding of how those things fit together and how we balance those. So that's really the heart behind Acts 6, 1 through 7. But I also don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture that's going on here. We kind of have to always remember where we're at in Acts. Remember, Acts 1-8 is really kind of the key verse that set the stage for the flow of the book. Jesus, right before his ascension, told the disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember, you can kind of think in these concentric circles, right? They're starting where they were, and then they're continually moving out from there. If we break Acts in, into two parts, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, those events all take place from Acts 1-1 to 12-25. So the first 12 chapters cover that. And then Acts 13-1 is Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So from there, the focus becomes the ends of the earth. So everything from there is kind of this outward focus. We need to recognize that because this Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, things are starting to move where we're at. And this, these three chapters, chapter six, seven, and eight, right where we're at, we're going we're to be for the next five weeks. This is a bit of a transitional section in the book of Acts. We're introduced to a new group of people, the Hellenists, which we'll look at. And, this, and the gospel is beginning to expand and go now into Samaria. And there are the Samaritans were kind of half, half breeds. There's some ethnic tensions that are going to be happening. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting things that are happening in chapter, chapter six through eight. I think this is important because this is all part of the plan. This is not accidental. This is not the early church trying to figure out what they're going to do as if the sovereign Lord of history is not behind all of this. This is Acts 1-8 fulfilling, being fulfilled the way that God intended. The Lord is both in control and leading his church to wisely deal with the problems that are brought on as a result of growing pains. We always have to be thinking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? There's not always, even as we look at this passage, there's not always a, like a, thus saith the Lord, this is what you must do. God is sovereign and he places people in positions to make decisions, Holy Spirit filled decisions that, and those things work together in harmony. This is just another great example of that, I think, in the book of Acts. So let's dive into our text today and see how this unfolds. I think we see here a macro problem, kind of an overarching problem, and then we see two micro problems that result, that come as a result of this macro problem. The macro problem is what we see right away in verse one. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, this increasing of disciples causes a problem. Now, Luke doesn't specifically say that this is a problem, but it is the overarching emphasis of this text. I mentioned earlier that, this, that Luke bookends this passage. Here he uses the word increasing. It says the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 7, which would be the, the bookend of this passage, says the word of God continued to increase. This word here, increase, is, in Greek is not the same as the word in verse 1. But it says the number of disciples multiplied 
greatly in Jerusalem. And that word multiplied, which the ESV translators just decided to change the word, probably not to double up the word increase in verse 7, which they probably could have chosen another word, whatever, I'm not the translator. But the word multiplied in verse 7 is the same as the word increasing in verse 1. So Luke is sandwiching, bookending this, this whole section with the church is increasing, right? That's, that's the context. That's what's going on. That's this kind of macro problem. Things are growing. And as a result of that, all these other little things start to happen. So the first micro problem, then, if you will, is in the second half of verse one. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what is going on here? And who are these Hellenists? They are Greek speakers. If you have the ESV and you probably have a footnote there for Hellenists, it says below Greek-speaking Jews. Um, this word Hellenist doesn't necessarily mean Jews. Uh, here in this context, it's clear that they are. Hellenist just means Greek speakers. It's used in a couple other places where they're not Jews. So um, here it is Greek-speaking Jews. So there's Greek-speaking Jews, there's Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, and there is this tension going on. These Hellenists would have been ethnically Jewish from the diet the diaspora, that is those who had been scattered abroad from the Assyrian captivity, which happened in the Northern Kingdom. If you were here a while ago for our Minor Prophets series, we talked a lot about this. The, the Northern Kingdom of, of Samaria, of, of Israel, capital in Samaria, was, was captured by the Assyrians and the people were taken away. Uh, the Southern Kingdom of Judah later was carried away into Babylon. So you have these Jewish people who ended up in other lands, ended up speaking other languages, being influenced by other cultures. They're still Jews. Many of them have returned. Uh, they're here in Jerusalem, obviously for the day of Pentecost, which we saw in chapter two. Some of them have probably moved back permanently, although they had grown up outside the land of Israel. Again, they're influenced by the Greek language and culture. And there are obviously ethnic and linguistic barriers that exist because of these things, even among those who were still ethnically Jewish and had now become Christians. Those tensions carry over. And one example of this, this is that uh, we have evidence that there were different synagogues that were worshiping. There were synagogues meeting at this time who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. And then there were synagogues that met where they would have read the Septuagint and they were speaking Greek. So you had groups of people that were ethnically similar, right? And, but they spoke different languages and they had some different customs and they're meeting to worship God, but they're meeting in separate places. Now, this should not surprise us. Shouldn't surprise us then. It shouldn't surprise us now. If we study church history, if we understand the history of denominations, there are always ethnic and linguistic issues going on. I think sometimes we, we tend to harp on denominations and, and some of these different divides. But if you think about the early days in America, if a group of Dutch people moved to a certain area and the Norwegians were already there and they had their church established and they're speaking Norwegian, you it would be ridiculous to say, well, Dutch people, why are you so concerned about your ethnicity or your language? Just there's a church. Go hang out with the Norwegians. Like that would not have made sense, right? I think we take that for granted today because we don't really live in that exact context, but there are 
good reasons why people were were separated in those types of ways. It wasn't always for bad reasons. It wasn't because they hated each other. There were those just kind of natural barriers. A major emphasis of the Protestant Reformation was translating the Bible into the language of the people. Therefore, the people being able to worship in their own tongue, to preach the gospel in their own native tongue. It wasn't the, the issue was that priests were doing the mass in Latin and nobody understood Latin, right? We, they needed to get the language into the common, into the vernacular, into the language of the common people. So the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth will inevitably lead to these ethnic and linguistic tensions as Christ's church seeks to be faithful, to serve, and to proclaim the gospel in, in the language and in the culture in which it has taken root. So, you know, as we, maybe the next time you have a conversation with somebody about denominations being bad, just, just throw that out there, right? Like, well, what about, what about this, right? It's not, all, it's not all bad. But we see an example of, of this right off the bat here in these early chapters of Acts. This complaint here arises. This word complaint could be like grumbling or murmuring. People are, you know, like, uh, like talking under their breath. What's going on here? This complaint comes because the Hellenist widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And again, it's probably mainly due to a communication problem. It's not Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't say, oh, the, there's this ethnic hatred against these Hellenists, right? It's probably mainly just that they weren't able to communicate and figure these things out. If you've ever been in a situation where you couldn't communicate with a group of people, maybe you were in the minority and some people were speaking another language, right? It is, it is an awkward situation. You're like trying to do hand gestures or you like start to talk really loud and really slowly, right? Doesn't help. People still don't know what you're saying. But a lack of clear communication, again, if you've been in that situation, you know, like, like, uh, what do we do? That's probably what's going on here, right? These, these widows are being overlooked because something is, is being missed. So I think we, we feel the weight of, of this problem and this tension. So what was the solution? The 12 apostles step in. They summon the full number of the disciples. And we already know that there are at least 5,000 disciples at this point. So there is no way that the 12 gathered 5,000 people and had a conversation together with all of them. Uh, we know they definitely weren't Presbyterian because this would have taken months to happen. If you're not familiar, like everything happens slowly in Presbyterianism. So, But Luke doesn't tell us who or how many were present or how this communication happened. But what is communicated by the apostles is what is actually the second micro problem so the first one is the the widows being overlooked the second micro problem problem we see in the second half of verse two it says it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of god to serve tables this is the primary task to which the apostles had been called the preaching of the word of god think about what paul says in romans 10 13 through 15 he quotes from Joel chapter 2, which Peter quoted in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul asks a series of questions that highlight the way in which people will call upon the name of the Lord. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who preach the good news. The apostles are saying here, this is our primary responsibility with which we have been tasked by the risen Lord Jesus. He told us to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit and then to go and to proclaim his salvation to the end of the earth. If we get bogged down trying to figure out this ethnic and linguistic dispute and make sure these widows are cared for, then we cannot do what we have been called to do. Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that they hated the Greek-speaking believers or that they had no compassion for these hungry, overlooked widows. But they did what any responsible, godly leaders would do. They sought to remedy the problem in a way that led to the continued growth and maturity of the church and those within it. So the solution to the first micro-problem of the widows is seen in verse 3 and then verses 5 and 6. Seven men are chosen for this task. And notice the qualifications here. Pick out seven men who run successful Fortune 500 companies who will ensure maximum productivity and efficiency. No. They don't ask for a polished resume here. Because although they know that they're not the ones who are to tackle this problem, they're not just trying to pawn it off onto anyone. This actually shows the depth of their concern. They're more interested in character than ability. Is that what we think about when we try to tackle a problem? Let's have the right people, right? The right type of people. Or do we just say, oh, let's just get it done. It just needs to get done. Let's just get it done. Here are the qualifications that they list in verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. This is a, a passive word. It's actually the word for witness or martyr. We could translate it. Choose seven men who are well testified of, right? If we want to think of it in that passive sense, kind of interesting. Seven men who are well testified of. Full of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what these widows needed, right? Not just someone to come in and drop the hammer and say, let's get to work. Let's get this done. They're full of the spirit and full of wisdom, meaning they will seek to do things well, probably rightly valuing productivity and efficiency, right? In this process for the glory of God. Now, verses five and six list the seven men, all Greek names, very fitting, obviously, right? They chose Greek speakers to help the Greek-speaking widows. They could give the attention then that they deserved. Stephen, who we are told is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And this is a helpful reminder, introduction to Stephen here, because for the next chapter and a half, we're going to see his faith and his spirit-filled response to those who seize him and eventually murder him. Luke will come back to Philip in chapter 8 as he 
goes and ministers in Samaria. And then the other five are never mentioned again in scripture. So we don't, don't want to speculate too much about that. I think it's also important that we don't just skip over verse six. It's easy to do sometimes at the end of a list of long names, right? You're kind of just like, oh, let me just get through this list of names. And then you, you kind of end up missing what comes after it. But this is important because this praying and laying on of hands is what we often associate with ordination. Now, there's lots of debate whether or not these seven men were the first deacons in the church. Uh, the exact term diakonos, which Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, is not used here as a title for these seven. But the word serve in verse 2 is the verbal form of the same word of where we get diakonos from. So whether or not this is the first official deacons in the church, the concept is certainly here. But either way, this is certainly setting the stage for what would later become the common practice in the church. That qualified men would be chosen as deacons to serve alongside the elders, whose primary work of preaching, teaching, and shepherding the flock is mirrored in the work of the apostles here in verse 4. This is where we see the solution to the second micro problem, which was that the apostles couldn't give up their primary responsibility of preaching the word of God to serve tables. Instead, they committed to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, the word ministry here is the word diakonia, which is the word service, where we get the title diakonos, serv servant or, or deacon. So the word for ministry here, that's that word. So it means service or ministry. And so verse four, they're saying the ministry of the word. And we don't see it in the English because the word is translated differently. But in verse one, the word distribution is that same exact word as ministry here in verse four. So we could um, call it the, in verse one, you could say maybe the daily service uh, would be another way to translate it. Or we could say the daily ministry of, of food. So it's the same concept here that the apostles in their preaching are doing ministry and those chosen to serve the tables are also doing ministry in their service. Again, we might distinguish between mercies of ministry and ministries of the word. Again, this distinction between the work of the deacons and the work of the elders is here. Now you might be wondering what on earth does this dispute in the early church have to do with us here today, right? Feels like something really far away, maybe doesn't relate to us. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, you're not a member of a church and you're like, this just, really, I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Wondering why I'm boring you with these details about these offices and these positions in the church. Or maybe you've been a part of a church that functioned in this way and you saw the good fruit of it. Or maybe the opposite. You didn't see these things function well. I, I talk to a lot of pastors and I hear a lot of horror stories related to these types of things. The question is, does it matter? I think the answer clearly is yes, it matters. Paul gives qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. And for elders in Titus chapter 1. Like the example I gave in the beginning, 
the house church group who was zealous to get back to the doing things like the early church. They soon realized that they needed a leadership structure and they couldn't have any old crazies teaching bizarre stuff. People love flattened out leadership until problems arise, right? And they always do. Until those problems arise and they realize that somebody needs to make hard decisions and somebody needs to be accountable for those decisions. This is how God has structured the church and the family. He has put elders in charge of the church to minister and to serve. And this is not some flippant calling. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There should be some fear and trembling in that regard. So husbands and fathers, we need to lead our families, not by domineering over them, but but by loving our wives, husbands, and not being harsh with them. And fathers, not provoking our children, lest they become discouraged. In other words, we must seek to be like Jesus. Now, the good news is that these things don't only apply to elders and deacons or to husbands and fathers. As those of us in the church of Jesus Christ, we all have much to learn from this passage. John Stott is especially helpful in his description of the principle that we learn here, which is, he says, that God calls all his people to ministry, that he calls different people to different ministries, and that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. He goes on, he says, neither ministry, the apostles, the ministry of the word, or the seven serving the tables, neither ministry is superior to the other. On the contrary, both are Christian ministries. That is ways of serving God and his people. Both require spiritual people full of the spirit to exercise them. And both can be full-time Christian ministries. The only difference between them lies in the form the ministry takes, requiring different gifts and different callings. He goes on, we do a great disservice to the church Whenever we refer to the pastorate as the ministry, for example, when we speak of ordination in terms of entering the ministry, this use of the definite article, saying the ministry, implies that the ordained pastorate is the only ministry there is. But diakonia is a generic word for service. It lacks specificity until a descriptive adjective is added, whether pastoral, social, political, medical, or Another, so pastoral ministry, social ministry, political ministry, medical ministry, or service. All Christians without exception, being followers of him who came not to be served, but to serve, are themselves called to ministry. Indeed, to give their lives in ministry. But the expression full-time Christian ministry is not to be restricted to church work and missionary service. It can also be exercised in government the media, the professions, business, industry, and the home. We need to recover this vision of the wide diversity of ministries to which God calls his people. He concludes here. It's the longest paragraph, but he concludes finally. 
In particular, it is vital for the health and growth of the church that pastors and people in the local congregation learn this lesson. True, pastors are not apostles, for the apostles were given authority to formulate and teach the gospel, while pastors are responsible to expound the message which the apostles have bequeathed to us in the New Testament. Nevertheless, it is a real ministry of the word to which pastors are called to dedicate their life. The apostles were not too busy for ministry, but preoccupied with the wrong ministry. So are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, which will include preaching to the congregation, counseling individuals, and training groups, they become overwhelmed with administration. Sometimes it is the pastor's fault. He wants to keep all the reins in his own hands. And sometimes the people's. They want him to be a jack of all trades. In either case, the consequences are disastrous. The standards of preaching and teaching decline since the pastor has little time to study or pray, and the lay people do not exercise their God-given roles since the pastor does everything himself. For both reasons, the congregation is inhibited from growing into maturity in Christ. What is needed is the basic biblical recognition that God calls different men and women to different ministries. Then the people will ensure that their pastor is set free from unnecessary administration in order to give himself to the ministry of the word, and the pastor will ensure that the people discover their gifts and develop ministries appropriate to them. Please hear me. This is not some passive-aggressive approach to say, you guys are burdening me, take it easy, right? Or that I need help or that you're not doing anything. That's not, uh, not trying to make you feel sorry for me. But we are at a very exciting point in our church. We are not a big church, right? And we're getting ready to send off a group of people. If you, if you haven't been here you'll, or, and you're going to be here, you'll be hearing about this. If you've been around, obviously you've been hearing about this for a long time. But we're going to keep talking about this as we go through Acts, right? We want to see how these things apply to our situation. By the grace of God, we've seen him raise up people who are going to be launched out to Stevens Point. And it takes a lot of trust for both of our churches. It takes a lot of trust for Livingstone to let all these people go, right? And to be able to regather and say, okay, how are we going to move forward? It takes a, a lot of trust for the Stevens Point folks, the Good Hope Presbyterian Church folks to say, we're going to, some of us, we're going to move, right? We're going to trust the Lord to provide in this next season, it takes trust. It takes an understanding of how God has structured things, how we are all, how we all have a part to play in the ministries of mercy and the ministries of the word. We have the privilege also in our churches to nominate and elect elders and deacons. We'll be talking about this a bit more next Sunday at our congregational meeting as we look forward to next year. If I can just give a shameless plug for church membership. Uh, if you are a member of the church, you get to nominate and elect and, and vote on elder and deacon candidates. So that is a, a great privilege that we have. Beyond that, I would also ask you to pray. Pray and ask God to raise up qualified godly men who can serve Livingstone Church and, and who can serve Good Hope Presbyterian Church, especially in this time of transition and in the future. Now, what is the result of a church or churches that function in the way that God has designed here? By the grace of God, they look like what we see in verse 7. 
which is another one of Luke's great summary statements in Acts. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I love the mention of the priests here. Uh, Luke doesn't explain it, but I think it's meant to shock us a little bit that a great many of those who were among the religious leaders who had been opposing the church were now coming to faith in Christ. Perhaps it was because they saw these Christians genuinely caring for those in need, and they saw the commitment to prayer and to the ministry and preaching of the word. What for them and their constituents, the priests, had maybe become religious complacency was blown apart by this community of Jesus followers who were walking their talk and being used by God to turn the world upside down. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that God can do the same thing today in us and through us, here in Oshkosh and in Stevens Point? Does our faith in our risen, reigning, and returning Lord lead us to the same type of commitment to what Stott called the wide diversity of ministries to which God calls his people? Are we looking for opportunities that are right there in front of us every day to know Christ and to make him known, to serve those around us and to proclaim the good news of what God has done for us in Christ? You don't need to be a, a pastor, an elder, a deacon. You don't need a title. You don't even need any recognition in the church to do those things. We all have a part to play. We have an opportunity now, as we come to this table, we have an opportunity to be served and to be sent out by our risen Lord. You come down and you take these elements from someone who we might call the servers, but it is not really them who are serving you. It is Christ who is serving you in this meal. He is serving you as your risen Savior, and he sends us out from here to go and to proclaim who he is. Donovan mentioned earlier that in his first coming, Jesus came as a lamb, tender, humble, came to bear our sins, came to go to the cross in our place. He died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven where he promised that one day he will come again as a lion. He's not coming back meek and mild when he returns. We come to this table again, as Donovan mentioned, we, as we are in this Advent season, and we do look back. Right? We look back to the cross. We remember and we celebrate Jesus' death, his sacrifice for us. But we also look forward in anticipation. We look forward to his return. And we need to ask ourselves, on the one hand, right, looking back, have I, am I right with God through Christ? Have I trusted what Christ has done on the cross for me? And it's not only that, as if we just rest in some thing that happened a long time ago, maybe even in our own lives, right, trusting Christ in our earlier days. We don't just sit complacently then and say, well, here we go, right? No, we look forward in anticipation. We long for his return. We live out what 
the types of things that we see in Acts 6, right? Doing that ministry in the world, serving people, proclaiming the good news. To come to this table doesn't mean that you're perfect, that you have it all together. It doesn't mean that you're, you're doing all those things greatly all the time. But it means that you are someone who has said, yes, I trust in Christ and Christ alone as my Savior. And yes, I am looking forward with anticipation to his return. I am living my life, however imperfectly, here and now, in light of his return, in anticipation of his return. So this table is open to anyone who says, yes, that is true of me. I'm a Christian and my trust is in Christ. You don't have to be a member of Livingstone Church. You just ask that you'd be someone who, is, who has been baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church, and you are welcome to come and to take the elements. If that is not you at this time, I'd ask that you would remain in your seat. We would love to talk more about you, more with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So 